Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. On the show today, I look forward to this weekend's MotoGP action in France and Keith's live from the Northwest 200 with a very special guest. And a heads up, uh, there is a few technical issues with that. Sound quality dips in and out, but hopefully... You'll really enjoy our little chat, which happens later on in the show. So uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, get in touch in the meantime, in all the usual ways. Crash MotoGP on the socials. Send us a, a question. Email it to podcast at crash.net. The recording day is Tuesday, the 9th of May. My name is Harry Benjamin. Joining me as ever is Crash MotoGP editor Pete McLaren and former Grand Prix rider and British champion Keith Hewin. Uh, now, oh, and, let's and look you forward- forgot one. And what North did I forget? West, Northwest 200 winner as a newcomer and lap record holder for here. Oh, it's a bit, bit of a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the mouthful that I love. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, Keith, it is element at the moment uh, in Northern Ireland. But uh, before we come on to uh, a little uh, Northwest 200 chat, why don't we have a look forward to this weekend? We're back in Le Mans, aren't we? Um, and Pete, I actually want to come to you first, if I may. Because uh, let's just pin down the riders that are in, the riders that are out, <laughs> and what's going on with Mark Marquez. So the, the riders in and out. So as we know, Bastianini tried to come back at Jerez. He he abandoned that. He's missing this weekend's race. There's, there's a bit of a break after it. So he's obviously deciding give the shoulder a, a, a bit more longer to recover. And then it'll be Mugello, actually, will be the next one. So it'll be a home race to come back. And in comes Danilo Petrucci. So that'll be a very popular move. Petrucci returning to the team with which he won this Le Mans race with in 2020 in the wet. So uh, we saw him, didn't we, last year at uh, Bury Rum on the Suzuki. That was the first time he'd been back since he, he left MotoGP as a full-time rider at the end of 21. Then he did the Dakar, didn't he? Moto America, everything. Now he's in World Superbike and he's jumping across with Ducati. So it's, it's an easier move now. He can jump across and he's back in MotoGP. Uh Paul Despargaru is still out. As we say, he's had those nasty injuries at round one. So Jonas Volker is still replacing him, the test rider. Um, then Mark Marquez was still waiting on an official decision on whether he's back or not from this thumb injury. But we have had an official announcement on his penalty that he got at round one, which has now officially been annulled, to use the uh, the terminology. Um, and so, yes, he won't, it, it, uh, it's, he won't need to do the long laps when he comes back, basically. That's what it means. Um, as Keith was just saying to us off air, it's a bit of the worst case, worst kept secret, really, isn't it? I mean, we all thought, yeah, you know, when that wording was changed, it's, you know, and Honda yeah, don't you know think it was, Daniel, they, were wait, they were waiting for Russia to invade somewhere else so they could lose the news <laughs> under, under the scene somewhere. It was just ridiculous. I mean, it should have been bloody announced 
you know, two minutes after it all happened because legally wise, it was never going to stand up. Great news for us, though, at least, was that it, it, it was announced while we were recording a podcast. So that's <laughs> <laughs> only because I had so many technical issues. We had plenty of time to wait for it. <laughs> <laughs> we absolutely did. Um, oh, well, that's at least that's something, Pete, though, isn't it? But I right, mean, yeah, sorry, I Miguel think, Oliveira, I yeah, can't just, imagine, yeah, will be too pleased with that. There's still more, isn't there? On the, yeah, so Miguel yeah. Oliveira is now out again for the second time this year with the shoulder dislocation. In comes Lorenzo Savadori, the Aprilia test rider who we spoke about road for RNF at the res test recently so we got a bit of time with the team on the last year's bike um and and ralph fernandez is going to his teammate is going to try and come back he had arm sur- arm pump surgery again we sort of we knew that was probably going to happen he's had it now but he needs to pass a medical he hopes to ride but again he's going to have to pass a medical on thursday so yeah there's still still a lot of walking wounded in MotoGP at the moment well, as we look forward to this weekend then, uh, Keith, what what can we expect for Le Mans? What, what's catching your eye? Well, it will be a riot to start with, like it always is at Le Mans. Le Mans is the, you know, like Argentina, which feels like a blast back to the 1980s. This place is exactly the same. Everywhere's a, you know, there's hooligans everywhere, campsites on fire. All you can smell is burning wood or burning houses um, for the entire week you're out there. The French really are a bunch. There's no doubt about it. They, they, I think they practice burning things at Le Mans before they move on to some other, some other political cause somewhere. Um, but it's a great. It's a. It's not a racetrack that's very enjoyable from a rider perspective. I don't think there are a couple of corners on there that you can say get your get your attention. But I don't, I don't think it's a. It's a very interesting racetrack, but it always produces a shock. You know, it's the kind of place that you you can turn up suddenly something that you weren't expecting. Um, and for some strange reason, the Brits always did quite well there. I mean, I'm still waiting for bloody uh, our man to win his first race after he chucked it away up there, Jake, Jake Dixon. I mean, he was on for winning that Moto 2 race. And uh, and this might be the one that he wins. Who knows? Let's hope it is. Well, if you keep bringing it up, it might not be. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, it's one of those situations <laughs> where I think Jake's uh, a bit better than my comments. Let's put it that way. I think mm. that he is a... a, a, a race winner still in waiting in the wings um we'll have to see i mean it's not a favorite i don't think from from my perspective Le Mans is a nice town it's a nice place to go to you know there's plenty of places to go and eat it's got a nice big square there um it's it's you know it's a it's a good place to be um but the 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 atmosphere of the racetrack is just wild well i don't know what on earth they're on when they're there but it is literally and if a Frenchman can do any good there, then there will be a, a riot. Um, and now that we've we've we've, we've gone through the the Brexit situation as well, they're not very good if you've got a GB sticker on your car. <laughs> <laughs> and they never have been. That's not that's not that's not recent. They don't, yeah, um, that's that's forever. The French and the English have always um, had a, had a little bit of competition there. So it can get a bit hectic if you're. If you're in the tunnel trying to get under the track and there's a traffic jam and they've got your GB stickers and you're on the you're on the wrong Take side of off. the car, <laughs> I've had them wheel my car from 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 the, the the walkway is higher than the cars, so you're likely to end up with any detritus that's left at the end of the race day over the top of your car. Including yeah, that the, wasn't was, be- that wasn't because you were British though. That was just because you keep you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd like to think not, but it might have been a combination. <laughs> Well, look, we've had um, we've got a time for a couple of questions that have come in off the, off the back of uh, our last race in Hereth, and, and again now as we look forward to uh, Le Mans. Uh, this one is from Hardy. Let's have a listen. Hello, gents. I'm Hardy from Scotland. I have a question relating to the situation at Yamaha. I'm wondering how much, if any, 
blame can be placed on the riders for the less than ideal state of the bike. Fabio largely overruled the likes of Dovi on the direction for the bike's development and ultimately got what he wanted, more horsepower, whilst Franco has been poor for so long that his data and insight is almost certainly less useful as a result. Are Franco and Fabio learning a tough lesson on how difficult it is to develop a bike? Thanks, guys. Love the pod. So now what, that we get some bloody good questions, don't we? Because that is a really smart question. There's no mm. doubt in my mind about that. And it is a collaboration between rider and team and engineer and factory. And I think if we go to the Gigi Delinea situation, Ducati had an okay motorbike that was massively faster than everything else that still couldn't win a championship until he came together and coordinated the rider, the team, and the factory, it seemed to me. There, there seemed to be three separate elements in that situation back in the day. Yeah, okay, they got Casey Stoner, who could ride it, and that was the reason why. But no one else could do what they're doing. I mean, Honda may have a similar situation. It's only Marquez who can ride it. Maybe that's because the collaboration between the, the three main elements isn't there. So I think the question is valid. Um, Cotteraro, did he have the experience to to develop a motorcycle or did he just jump on a motorbike that was actually renowned as being the easiest bike to ride and he found it absolutely to his liking the default when he got to that bike at that time in his career and at that time in time it was a bike that he could ride to the to the to the to where it was to and put it where he did but now that it's moved on a bit and they need a bit more then they're not able to develop it in the way that it needs to be done um Morbidelli had that injury for a long time and that really wiped out any any input that he had. So I think that, yes, the riders do have some responsibility in short to your question. I think it's broader than that. But I think that the linkage between rider, engineers and factory are things that have to be a cohesive, cohesive group of people working together with one goal. And you wonder whether because there aren't enough Yamaha riders on the track, otherwise there's only really been two, the data they're receiving, the data they're trying to disseminate just isn't enough to move them forward. Um, Suzuki did it brilliantly. You know, Ken Kowalchi has moved across as well. So, you know, one of their top technicians is, is moving around. You know, we've had some very good guys that have gone from Suzuki to other factories now, which have benefited other factories. Ducati have, have, have crossed that bridge to make their motorbike work everywhere. KTM have, have, have got it sorted now. It's incredible what they've achieved in in this winter period. Aprilia have done it as well. It's amazing that, that you've, you've got Yamaha that are being left behind, Suzuki that have had to leave completely. On the Honda, what are they on the cusp of? A black hole, it almost seems to me at the moment, Honda. It just doesn't seem that even with more bikes on the track, that they can move it forward just yet. Um, there must be a lot of people scratching their heads, but riders do have to take a responsibility as well. But if they don't have the experience, like Cotteraro perhaps didn't have really, he became, he was a, a two times Moto 2 winner, or one time if you take it officially, because the other one took away from him. But, you know, he was a, you know, an, experience, an unex, inexperienced Moto 2 rider that came into Moto GP and lucked out that the bike worked for him and performed in a way that his style worked with. Now, from that point onwards, developing something is a whole different game. It's a tricky one, isn't it? As you say, Keith, you, you think, well, that, they must obviously share some responsibility for it. I mean, I guess if you're Quattararo, and I think he, he's raised this at Arez, he'd say, well, you know, if you look at the Yamaha, it looks visibly very similar to three or four years ago. You look at the Ducati or the Aprilia, they look completely different. And and so, you know, that's again the aero and, and things like that coming into play. And I mean, Quattararo, I guess as a rider, 
you've got to be clear, haven't you, about what you want. And I would say that he, certainly this year, he's very clear about where the problems of the bike are. You know, he's trying to emphasize that, yes, they've got more power, but it's not enough. And they're still having to run the small wings. So he's saying that actually the engine power is not even now anywhere near what it needs to be because they're having to go with those small wings. They have much bigger aerodynamics available. Cal was testing them. Um, both riders had them in test in, in winter testing as well. And then they suddenly went back to last year's because they couldn't get the speed and everything else working. But going back to old parts in this in this era of MotoGP, I mean, it's only going to be a very small stopgap fix, isn't it? You've got to come up with new stuff. And, and that's where I think you would say, if you looked at the Yamaha, there's not lots of things being thrown at it. Like we saw KTM at the test at Arez. You know, all these different parts coming into play. That doesn't seem to be happening at Yamaha. And, uh, you know, Quattro is clear about what he needs. You know, the bike needs to qualify and he's struggling in the race situations. Maybe Suzuki saw the writing on the wall for a cross-plane four-cylinder motorcycle. Maybe the situation was they were topped out on their development, where they could go, and they knew that they had to go V4 style or something along those lines to get to get the kind of power, the type of power that everybody else had. And maybe that's why Suzuki pulled the plug, even though they'd signed over another five years and all the rest of it with, with MotoGP. They just got to that position. There would have been other business reasons, I'm sure, behind it. But on reflection, perhaps that was an element of their decision to pull out because they were at the end of their development with that style of, of, of power package. And maybe Yamaha are there as well. You know, you're forcing them across plane. It's a fast motorcycle on its own. You know, like if Quattararo, if he can run his lines, he, he, he's able to, to use what he's got. But you can't do that in a, in a situation where everyone else's style and performance is, is putting it down in a different place on, on the track and that just mucks up Quattro or whoever's riding the bike. It will mess their corner speed up in one way or another. So maybe Yamaha, and again, this is what worries me about whether we will be in a situation where we'll lose someone like Yamaha to the series, in that the investment in changing their philosophy of powertrain is huge. And it goes against their marketing, perhaps, of what they've got going on in the in the road bike scenario. You know, I'm at the Northwest 200 where it's a road track with road, you know, road-based motorcycles racing around here. And they're doing, you know, today from a standing start, Alistair see the 205 miles an hour through the speed trap, you know, on what is a modified road bike, effectively. You know, the, the superstock class are all just clicking 199 mile an hour through the speed trap here. I know it's fast, but, you know, and actually, they're dinosaurs. You know, is that the trajectory that marketing of motorcycles is going in? I don't think it is. Superbikes are... Their sales are, are stagnant completely. Super sports bikes are, are going quite well at the moment. Off-road stuff is going well at the moment. You know, the development platforms, are they as relevant as they once were? It's a question, not a statement. I mean, I I just think to myself sometimes that, that maybe Suzuki saw where their future lie and dived out of the, of the game. Will Yamaha do the same? Taking that a little bit further, Keith, and, and I think that's a very good point, and I and really thought about it but maybe then with the rules that are coming up in the future should there be different slightly different technical rules for inline four cylinders for in the same way that we have different rules for different numbers of cylinders just to try and keep that variety there maybe that's something that that needs to be to be thought about i don't know and one more thing on the yamaha maybe they they should have used morbidelli a bit like ducati used pramac you know maybe morbidelli should have kept the big aero just so they were gathering data on it in all these rounds i mean okay it might not have been ideal for Morbidelli but I mean they they felt that that was 
obviously going to be their new aero for this year. Maybe with hindsight, they, they could have gone, look, Franco, we want you to run this aero. Fabio, want, he likes the old one, but we really want you to run this. You can get all the data on it. And we've got two different bikes then, whereas now they've only got data on last year's aero. They're going to have to introduce new aero at some stage, but it's going to be a big gamble, isn't it? You've got no testing now until Mizano in, well, in September. Let me expand that out then, Pete, because I think you're bang on dead right there. I think that's a really good you know, travel, direction of travel. Alter the concessions package so the manufacturers that are, that are yeah. obviously clearly in trouble give them some concessions so they can test extra stuff. And I think that's where Yamaha's at. The, the, the testing issue has been an issue, is an issue. But also it's the financial issue. The amount of money now being spent and the amount of commitment that each of these teams has to have is, is huge. We've covered it so many times in podcasts before. But I think the concessions could be expanded. It costs really nothing. And, and they can try stuff, you know, around the races perhaps you know book a test day the day after or something like that on a racetrack that's relevant you know without going somewhere across the other side of the world when the weather conditions are different to anything that they're going to be seeing when you when you're back to back testing the next day of the, of the, with your test riders or with your main riders that's the issue i think with yamaha they want to they should really test with their main race riders and they need concessions to be able to do that so maybe there's a, a position where within the new package when it comes that concessions can be modified a little bit and fine tune yeah, well, great question, uh, Hardy. Thank you very much for sending that one in. Uh, just enough time. We'll get one more in uh, from one Japanese manufacturer to another. It's uh, it's our friend Dean. Hi, guys. It's Dean from Essex. Hope everyone's well. Um, my question today is about Alex Rins. And what do you think about Alex Rins getting a recent slap on the wrist by Honda and a warning um, for speaking negatively about Honda and the fact they're not utilising him as a test rider as he was not able to test the Calyx chassis of uh, Stefan Bradl's bike. And also, yeah, going forwards from that. Um, tell me what you think, guys. Let me know your thoughts. Uh, have a great day. Yeah, he's up. That's what I like to hear. A little bit of um, as you like. Um, <laughs> do you know what? It's very frustrating when you're, when you're a rider on the up. Rins, is, Rins is, is there or thereabouts at the moment. I mean, and, and you do get frustrated and you can't always homogenize or whatever the word would be your speech and your, your, you know, and there's, you know, 50 journos, Pete included, hanging around behind the trucks trying to get the odd scoop. And if you get a rider in the right mood at the or the wrong mood at the right time or the right mood at the wrong time, then you get a result. And I mean, I used to hang around like a, a you know naughty little boy in the mornings at sort of half past six at a racetrack in the car park on the way into a track because everybody has to come past you. You know, all the all the riders, all the teams, all the techs, and you just hang around. You know, block past them in your hire car on the way in, and then apologize profusely and strike up a conversation with whoever you like and um then get information and somebody's obviously got him to a point where he's not been in the best of moods um and i don't blame him you know he should have been used as a right you know he's a guy on the up he's doing the business at the minute he, you know but honda we talked about yamaha a moment ago being ones that could withdraw from from the series but, you know honda at the moment must be thinking what have we got to do now, this has been an ongoing situation since the electronics package was changed. Honda had a, an electronics package, you know, the ECU and the inertial platform that really controlled their bike really, really well. It was very advanced. And we went back to the Magnani Morelli system for everybody. 
And it didn't really work for Honda. They were all at sea. And it didn't really work for Yamaha, actually, when I think about it. About times Colin Edwards used to bleat about the fact that he was never quite as good as he was before. Um, although Alasia at that time got on with it okay. You know, it was a situation where Honda, Honda's philosophy has to change slightly. And I think it is in the fact that they are trying a different chassis. Um, maybe they just didn't have the capacity to be able to try it. And the fact that testing was restricted to the amount it was restricted to meant that they haven't been able to get a fair bite of the cherry. Was it any better? To be honest, I don't think anybody really knew. You know, if you jumped on a bike, you wouldn't you wouldn't find the immediate advantages in something until you'd gone through the full schedule of, of, of changing other things. You put a new chassis on it, that doesn't naturally fix something because by then you've got to dial in the suspension at the rear, suspension at the front, the ride eye adjustment, you know, everything, you know, even the way that the, the, the thing accelerates and decelerates. You've got to dial all that in to suit the chassis. You can't do that in one day. That's weeks of work. You know, what did um, Jeremy Burgess used to call it on the MR? What was it, the MR team, maybe? I can't remember that used to say that it was the the, the blunderbuss or the shotgun bloody uh, cure where they used to fire everything at it all in one yeah. go. Just that sometimes that's a real last gasp effort to make it work. And it hasn't. And it won't. We are in, we're in an era of, thousands of seconds to the to, to the third decimal point and I've argued often that we need the fourth decimal point now because sometimes we get two or three teams on a whole lap with different manufacturers that are on exactly the same time we're in a different era things are minuscule the advantages that people find and just chucking you know this at it and that it doesn't work really you need the time the progress to, to work it through Maybe Honda need concessions as well. I can't, can't believe I'm saying that. Maybe like Yamaha, Honda needs concessions as well. I mean, as much as I'm waving the flag for the good old EU, doing brilliantly, I'm not, by the way, but anyway, um, the, the European manufacturers are doing so well compared with the Japanese. But these things have a shift, don't they? I mean, the, the, the Europeans have been fighting to get back to where they are, and the Jap Japanese have been a little bit, well, have they been slightly lazy perhaps not treated it with the amount of effort they should have done i mean you got alex rins coming in uh, they say jerez was a bad round for him anyway so i'm sure he wasn't in a perfect move but then also he's coming from there isn't he he's just one in kota but also he's coming into honda having been a factory rider for all of his motor gp career and now he's in a satellite team and maybe he's realizing what it's like to be in a satellite team which is Okay, you can have a factory contract, which he's got. You can have the latest bike, a 2023 bike, which he's got. But there's always going to be that that order, that hierarchy, isn't there, of, of who gets the new parts first. And the thing with the, the Calix chassis, I, was, I think Rins, he said to us in English, obviously the, the riders speak, if they're in this case Spanish, he will speak to Spanish media and he'll speak then again to us in English. So sometimes they say slightly different things. But he did bring up that he was surprised that he didn't get to try it. But, I mean... Bridle, as we spoke about, he threw it down the road. It was it was a big accident that he had on that Calyx. They rushed to rebuild it. Mia took it out then, and and I think he didn't even do one lap, and and the bike broke down because of an electrical pro electrical problem, probably related to all the the accident before and things like that. So, I mean that that accident put the whole schedule behind anyway. Whether whether Rins was due to test it, I honestly don't know. But I think you know, given that Mia, he didn't get to test it either. Really, I mean, you can't judge anything from an outlap. So. Really, he's no worse off than the other Honda riders. But I think there is a bit of frustration there that, yeah, maybe he's realising what life is like as a, a satellite rider 
And, you know, fair enough. He has, you know, he broke Honda's windright and maybe he thinks, come on, guys, you know, Mark's still out and, and wants a bit more support. But we know that the Japanese teams, they don't tend to switch support that quickly between their riders, you know, in satellite teams and things. We've seen the Europeans, they are quite open. If you bring the results, we'll bring you the parts kind of thing. The Japanese are much more sort of, well, this is the situation. This is the factory team and this is the satellite team. And I think those those things are coming into play there. Well, thank you, Dean, for that question. Um, now, we uh, mentioned that Keith was uh, in Northern Ireland for the Northwest 200. Uh, and a little earlier on, we uh, just about caught up with uh, a special guest. Now, I mentioned right at the start of uh, today's show that Keith is live from the Northwest 200 and uh, he's got a very special guest with him. Have indeed. Jeremy McWilliams, thanks for joining us, Jeremy. He's just come through a thunderstorm to get to a... As you can see, we're in salubrious broadcast offices, as usual, that are temporary at all racetracks that we're all used to, but people at home probably won't be. But Jez has just had to work his way through a thunderstorm here, which is typical for the northwest of Ireland, isn't it? Uh, we go from bright sunshine to incredible bad weather. And he's still fast, 59 years old. Jeremy McWilliams, I've got to say, we're all we're all bloody like this here. We, we have to say, I mean, the guy is still incredibly quick on this nine-mile circuit. But that ain't what we want to talk to you about. We want to talk about Mudder GP, Jeremy. <laughs> all right. Which you've been excluded all from. All right, you've okay. Been we're in the deep end then, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm not letting red now anymore. I, my last race when I was 50 at Moorum 2, at Silverstone, and uh, actually, to be honest, I felt a little bit out of it back then. I was probably a year or two too old to be taking part in Moto2, but I did it at the request of uh, Mike Trimby at, at Urta because they wanted to be to test a new bike. Anyway, suffice to say, it stopped very quickly after that. Of course, most of us, Jeremy, want to know about what's going on in MotoGP, the, the, the aero situation, the ride height adjustments, all those nuances that we seem to have worked into the system now and how that affects tire performance you know rider attitude there's such a this is such a wide brief for you to go rabbiting on for um we can now say go jeremy and um, the next half hour should be very interesting i, I think it's something that uh that, that has to be embraced now you know there, there's a uh, quite a divided uh, you know opinion on this where people are saying let's let's get the arrow back off and get it back to a how it was that to me can't happen speaking with technicians and ktm and people that i know within MotoGP, it's gone too far already and it's just got to be embraced and carry on with it now you know you cannot run a, a 300 horsepower motorcycle in a straight line really without some kind of aid at the moment and that's the issue particularly at somewhere like Mugello. So i was saying you know Mugello, that that hill at Mugello needs some kind of arrow on the front of the bike to keep the front wheel in contact with the floor and if it wasn't there they're all going to be wheeling over it uh, or they're going to be wheeling and spinning. So arrow at the moment uh, is just going to have to, it's, it's just going to have to be accepted and, and carry on and all teams will catch up and all teams will get as good as he, as one another at it, the more money they spend on it. And let's, let's be honest, MotoGP, money, arrow, what, what, what's the difference? It costs that much anyway, you know, you know, KTM are using Red Bull technology at the moment and it seems to be working. So, we're embracing F1 technology. Uh, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know, but I know we can't take aero bag off. KTM seem to have made an absolutely enormous step from testing where, you know, us included, but most of the world, I would suggest, um, thought they were going to be the flop of the year. And 
from testing to where we are now was remarkable. Did did you guys see that coming? Were you trying stuff in testing that you hadn't? Had you already got a default mode before you went testing, and then you've gone back to that? What, what, what's the story? How did how did it get to the point where we all thought you were going to be a flop, and then all of a sudden you're race winning material across other riders, several riders. There's a number of things, uh, you know, that help that. Obviously, the test team has been instrumental and uh, our test rider, particularly Danny Pedrosa, you know, going on from Mika Callio through to Danny. They're obviously awesome test riders, but they just can't produce everything on their own. You know, you you, you can throw stuff at a test rider all day long and he, he, he'll, he'll him and ha between bits and pieces and jump between one or and, and the next bit, but you won't see huge improvements over over a couple of days testing i was at a wind tunnel test with the t- with the test team uh, for aero so it's a pretty simple job you just sit on the motorcycle in a in a 180 mile an hour wind tunnel all day with earplugs in make sure your elbows don't <laughs> don't don't tick out and they're looking for particular size riders riders that can fit perfectly behind and then what they do is they get you to uh, comment on on different screens, uh, front nose cone shapes, wings, uh, really everything that goes all the way through the right down to the back of the bike and what it affects the rider when you're sitting in a prone position. That's quite interesting because you learn quite a lot about about the shapes of the windscreen and the shape so that they're using at the front and how that does affect the rider. And sometimes the winglets and wings do have an effect on buffeting on the rider. So the reason behind it is obviously to reduce that buffeting, and then for them to take that data, uh, they're they're all they're they're monitoring it and and watching airflow over the top of the rider, uh, drag efficiency or coefficiency, and 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 then working out what's best. Then when I was there, the Red Bull uh, Aero team arrived, so they were starting to use those guys from from Red Bull, and. Part of the reason, maybe, that they're improving so much is because their arrow is getting better. Uh, another reason, and let's be honest, is that uh, you know Jack Miller's come from Ducati, so when he's come over from Ducati, he's brought he brought something like t- uh, Ducati technology with him. Um, KTM have been employing some Ducati technicians, as we know, and that's that's how it works. Jeremy, it's fascinating to to hear that. I- I'm also keen to know. You, we t- Keith asked you about you know the rate at ktm develops but how do you look at MotoGP in the modern day as well we talk you talk about aero there but also they're fiddling with the the format and the setup we've got the sprint that's come in now how have you looked at that this year we've had a few races now lots of injuries more so perhaps than if we didn't have the sprint how do you feel about it i i was you know absolutely against it to begin with because i'm i was so happy to see the progression of MotoGP carrying on throughout the weekend and how you know, the, the you know team strategy were working working towards that that ever fastest lap that they needed for qualification. Now it seems that teams don't have the time to do that. They can't, they can't get there. So not always the same teams that you expect that make better progress are the ones ending up on top, which is really <laughs> actually made the whole format that little bit much more fun to watch on a Saturday. Because I, I guess I guess I thought I was going to miss all of that, but when you throw a sprint race in with hardly any qualifying time, or you know teams that are on the back foot with not the the, the absolute um, perfect setup, and then put them into a race situation, it's bloody brilliant. It's fantastic, and I I 
I, I just think they should maybe just have a number of sprint races through the, through the the weekend. But the sprint race right now is is pretty awesome to watch because, and particularly for KTM fans or KTM employees like myself, because KTM have worked very very hard on on trying to get that perfect start, and you can see twice in RF. You know that that both Jack and Brad were able to to get to the front, and that's kind of nearly nearly half the battle right now in in MotoGP. You know where we're going to go back and start talking about aero and the difficulties in passing with, because of aero, etc. But it it makes determined riders like Jack and Brad absolutely. Uh, you know, it it motivates them no end to be somewhere near the front because they know they can now win a sprint race. Uh, Jack's first time on the podium with KTM, and then, you know, let's be honest, when we looked at Adam in in uh, preseason testing, he did, he didn't look all of that, uh, you know, special on on the bike, but he's adapted to the bike very well, and uh, and all of a sudden, you know, he's 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 now in podium position and put himself in podium positions also for for the main event. So, I think the sprint race is good. Uh, I'm sure if you asked all of the teams and riders. You know they're they're not probably making anything more out of it in terms of monetary gains for for riders or prize funds or whatever that might be, and it puts them under a bit more pressure, puts the team under a bit more pressure because the team have to work extra hard. But I'm sure that the teams are going to be coming up with something at the end of the season, particularly if their guys are on top all the time. There's going to be bonuses handed out. So let's say let's let's just let's admit it makes awesome TV. Well, it is our producer Adrian who we feel very sorry for. Uh, I'm sure it won't make sense to our to our viewers or listeners because he'll have smoothed this all over. Uh, but Keith has changed changed location and he's now joined Jeremy. Uh, so I will hand back over to Keith uh, and we'll pick up where we left off. Well, I think that the the the, the big thing for me is how KTM made the improvement that they made from being what looked like going to be a disaster through testing preseason. Suddenly that bike, when we got to the Grand Prix, across all the different shapes and sizes of Rider, they made it work the way that they did, how the improvement came. Now, I wondered whether perhaps in testing, you'd thrown us all a bit of a banana to slip over on when it came to our production and our, um, our prediction. Um, then came out with a motorbike that works across lots of different shapes and sizes and different riding styles, you know, as Danny proved, in the way that he did. I mean... Did KTM know that this was going to be the case? Had they had that that knowledge prior? I think there's 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 all these uh, with everything a phase a development phase that doesn't that lower out. You can say it didn't that lower out with KTM. Beginning of the season it looked like you know that there were areas where that KTM were going to struggle in. But you know you've got a test team that is working very very hard behind the scenes with Wolfgang Weber and his guys and. Uh, and as I say, yeah, they make small improvements, and riders like Danny Pedrosa, who are awesome test riders, by the way, are are integral of that part of that whole team. Really give the correct feedback when we're going the right way and what's going the wrong way, same thing. But that only gets it so far, Keith. You know, there's other factors that have to come into it, and you know, I was on the wind tall saying Europe with them about end of last year. Uh, Trying different screens, different different wings, etc. How it affects the buffeting on the on the rider, how stable it, it keeps the rider in position. All of those things that you do with a you know hundred eighty per hour wind tunnel down there. But at the same time, 
Red Bull technology over there, you know, their F1 technology, so their aero technology, which brings up a huge... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Might have experience into KTM. And you can see some of that was paying off some new parts on the bike that we haven't seen before. But it's not just that. It's other things like bringing Jack Miller into the team, bringing what he learned with Ducati, bringing some Ducati engineers into the team. We know we've done that. Every team does it. You know, good technicians do get snapped up by other teams. And the reason why is not because they need more people. They need the right people. So people, you know, our guys do get replaced whenever there's availability of, of a Ducati engineer or whoever that might be, or a pretty engineer, then they're going to snap them up. That's what happened. So let, let's be honest. It's it's been a you know a kind of a, a mix of, of all these things. Also, I think it was broad from from by Mullen. And sorry if I'm repeating this, but our internet breakup that we've had a moment ago. But Danny Pajosa particularly wasn't really that wanted by HRC by Honda, um, and he was almost like a giveaway to KTM. They didn't value him in the way that KTM did. Whether that had something to do with Mike Leidner originally, who is and was at KTM at that time. You know, Danny came on board, and it it comes back to down to the fact they built a motorcycle, like the M1 Yamaha used to be, where everybody could ride it pretty well. KTM seems now, across all these different rider platforms, rider ideas, rider input, they've made a bike that works for all these different 
you're, you're obviously there, right? There, you know, Mike Leiter would have had something to do with Stag Pedrosa come in because he worked with them for so long and he obviously rated them very, very highly. You know, for whatever reason, the HRC didn't reckon they needed Danny as a test driver. I'll never know why why they would have let him go because it's been so good for, for KTM and it continues to be. And then when you see what he's capable of doing at her F, after not riding since 2018, it's absolutely incredible. He can the top six. But also, if you remember, Francesco Guadalti, you know, came away from Ducati and joined KGM as a team manager. He used to work with me many, many years ago. Very, very, very clever guy too. Uh, and he also rated Jack Miller. He, you know, he continued to rate Jack Miller whenever Ducati thought the Jack was kind of washed up and time to replace him. I think Ducati's loss was KTM's gain. And, that, you know, so... so those those factors, you know, even having people in the in your team that, that that you worked with before and want you back again and believe in you, also gives the rider like a second cap wind, you know, big motivation to be that like tactic with the KTM. They have a kind of winning philosophy of KTM. They're quite ruthless from where from looking outside, looking in. It, it always appears to me in MTM that they are prepared to make steps. Immediately. I think of the Zarco situation when Zarco said it didn't quite me. Um, he gave them a, a bit of notice of the fact he was going to leave them at the end of the year. And they said, okay, bye, yeah. <laughs> see ya. And he was he was fired out of there straight away. I mean, they, they seem to be people that, that they want that 100%, 110% dedication to call or not. Motorsports, uh, probably the most difficult department to work within in KTM, you know, been tempted a couple of times by Fabo to go and Wolfgang, you know, who I've worked with in the past, uh, who works with Kurt Treve and Mulder Jensen. He's kind of been trying to tease me in. I've always thought, you know, it's it looks like a such a, a you know, it, it is a, a lion's den in there. You know, you, you, you've got to be able to pull your weight. You've got to be able to do what you're, you've, you've set your, your target on going in to do or else don't, don't even bother. I've got such a good job with my R&D department. And with some marketing stuff that I go to do, I'm quite happy just watching the motorsport department from the outside and killing all my day job because I know I've got a three-year contract with them. You know, you'll, you'll never get a three-year contract with a motorsport department. And you might get a one year and if it, if, if it goes well, and then I get and you, you know, you've, you've done what you've end up to do it there and then they keep it for another year. There's no guarantees. But, and that's just the way it is. But the personnel in all motorsports department, not KTM, Ducati, on the Yamaha, wherever it might be, they're all changing hands quite quickly. Do they poach? Do they actively look at all the other teams? And you mentioned Guadalti earlier on. He's got good experience with, with so many different people and, and teams. Do they, do they actually look if there's a weakness? Is there a situation behind the bike ship where they're fiddling up different personnel around the paddock? Obviously, illegally, they're not supposed to, and everyone's under, under non-disclosure orders and God knows what in their contract. But is there a little bit of that? I won't say KTM, let's say generally. Is there a little bit of that going on around the trucks all the time? Yes, you can. I don't even go on state. I guess that is, you're right. We, you know, there's reasons for employing and coaching managers like come back. Because obviously he's got a, he's Italian. Yeah, well, he's got things for the Ducati. He's worked with Ducati for many, many years. So he knows that maybe. Some technicians that are that are, that are not working any longer, or, or move to a different team, or not happy, or whatever they might be, you can go and say, "Look, 
It's not truly over a year, you know, next year. It's not going to take them there and then. He's going to wait the years out. Then they're going to say, okay, we have an option for you. Maybe in the year 2023, when it was 21, what he, he, he were back. Twenty-one was that, and you can see that some of those guys that trust them and believe in them, you know, have come over, and that's that's how it works. But you, you've got to have a, a very very high level of trust in, in that guy for him to be able to coach or, or ask him to come over when they're finished up with public joy. I can't see doing. I may be wrong here, but I'll ask you because you know better than me because you've been to the factories and you know how it all works from, from that perspective. But they are a small organisation, really, as an overall producer of goods, if you like. Heaven, surely, with the likes of Suzuki on the Yamaha. I mean, surely those are, they, they must surely shift more units than, than maybe KTM do. We know they're massive in off road, so therefore there must be a fair bit of profit in that. But how does a relatively small, what we do, considered to be a small factory, put all those resources into a situation where, for instance, Suzuki had to pile out because they basically didn't have enough money to continue. So how does how does KTM find that amount of cash to actually achieve that? Well, firstly, you know, I was with them not so long ago when we first year that we earned over a billion, billion euros, and that's now double. So they're actually the biggest European um, producer, so above Ducati, about yeah. all the other pre Agio and all that lot. Well, you, when you put it all all together, you know all of their off road stuff and everything. I think they're they're not the biggest shirt. So, of motorcycles. So, obviously, that's all to do with. But a lot of it's to do with with the right sponsorship, and they have the right sponsorship in place. And now that that sponsorship's paying off, you know, you heard the rumors. Okay, you know they're not going to hang around forever waiting for a result. But right now, I'm sure Red Bull is happier than they've ever been with any team at the moment because of what KGM are doing and what Red Bull are doing with them. And it's, it, it, it looks at, it always was a match made in heaven. It's been, you know, there for many, many years. It's two Austrian companies side by side and it, and it just fits, fits very, very, very well. So, uh, let, let's be honest, you know, that a lot of it really hinges on that, that sponsorship. I mean, I can't. It's got to be the biggest market in the world still for motorcycles because of the off road motorcycle. I mean, that ATM make it happy packers. I've ever seen But they've got a huge share of the market over there, as you know. And, you know, they look at their world titles, you can understand why. Um, and they continue to, to to succeed everywhere and in every every discipline that they, that they step into. Where's the next gap then for KTM racing, as in road racing, as in Grand Prix racing? Where do we, um, is, is there the direction they're aiming at? Well, when they've achieved all they set out to achieve to be IGP world champions, which you can't say, with the way they're going at the moment, this year could be the year even. I mean, we don't even need to look next year. Um, they must have an ultimate goal at the end of the day to be MotoGP world champions. What's next? I think everything hinges on that at the moment. Uh, in the future, you know, it'll be it, it again. There's a the moment where probably bringing another department, opening a department again that also helps bring in more customers on onto the track. And yeah, we I just come from an RC at Sea launch, which was pretty awesome. So, track bike only one of the only manufacturers making track bikes only at the minute and, and selling exclusively, you know, with in limited numbers. 
And that seems to be quite a successful part of what they're doing right now. I think that's going to get bigger and bigger. So we can only hope that again, those smaller classes, you know, startup may not have just come from India where we were to our seat for the Cup, where they'd had a thousand participants taking place in a hundred, actually, yeah, a hundred cities over about six or seven months and they whittled it right down to uh, 80 participants taking part in the very, very last one, all on KTM3, RC390s. Then three, the three winners from that, there's three, three top riders from that, like I'm over to Austria, get to ride on track with us. That is a Red Bull ring. Lots, so lots of nice little things like, like that happening in the, in the background uh, that KTM are, are there supporting. And I think that'll carry on. Hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll get to see them going back in to other stronger, maybe in towards Sport 300. Um, we know in the future on something that we're working on that we want to be in 600 Super Sport. So there's, they are putting their toe back into the water in other classes again. That's a couple of years down the line, but at least we can see that the, you know, things are in place at the moment to make that happen. I had to rib you about your age as soon as you come on, and that obviously is jealousy. Well, she was still playing football, was still an athlete, whereas I'm not being comparison. But you ever have trouble kind of keeping up with the pace of technology and the piece of the way things are done behind the scenes? It's quite a daunting uh, area now, isn't it? Technology. I'd love to be able to tell you. I'll tell you when we start recording. But <laughs> it's, I mean, it blew my mind away. It's, it's breaking technology. Which which we will use uh, very very soon. Are you scared by it? Does it does it kind of? I remember my old dad talking about mobile phones when they first came into you know like and you all got mobile phone. He was blown away by the fact you could use a mobile. Phone. Is it that kind of groundbreak? We're moving at such a pace, aren't we? Forwards it's exponential. We just keep rolling forward with more and greater ideas. In fact, that brought us out. Let me ask you: Is the MotoGP rulebook too thin to cope with? the kind of technology and the kind of people that are now pushing. Very good point, yeah. And it could be, and, um, you know, the, I mean, but look, it, I think we have to look at Ducati as the leaders of innovations. You look at GTG, those guys that have, that have brought all of this firstly, and then other teams copy it. You know, who knows what's around the corner? Um, has GT run out of ideas yet? But, you know, we've also got engineers on there at the moment as with one last week and you know they've got some really good ideas for the future as well that seem to me like it's going to take it up a level because we kind of thought that well we've got to be there now it's 300 horsepower plus 300 horsepower how much more can it go but talking to these engineers already they're thinking about the next step and, and how to get how to move that up you move us on to another question then don't you I mean already we're looking at racetracks they've been getting a bit tight speak of these bikes and the fact that now you can get in and out corners and with aero and the like, and ground effects that it's trying as well. That you know now that the things can sit, or they're now sucking it to the ground with a bit of ground effect aero as well. It's all gone a little bit mad, but what that does is then become a cost war. You know, it's who can finance the the development as fast as the next man. That must be surely a problem, even for a well-funded team like Ace. Yeah. probably more of a problem for. You know, teams that are left behind, you know, how do we catch up? How is Honda ever going to catch up? You know, 
it's European manufacturers that are leading the world championship. I don't know when you ever heard us take on. Be quite a few years since you didn't see a Japanese manufacturer right at the forefront. So you know, you know, it looks more a little bit like like the Japanese manufacturer are getting left behind because this this technology or in, in, innovations or that are happening seem to be happening in Europe. Um, and I guess, as you just quite rightly said, it has to be happening in Europe because most of all of the Formula One stuff's based in Europe. So anything they're learning from, they're learning from or Formula One. But you know, back to that first question. As those bikes produce more and more power, there's no way that we could take that arrow away, Keith. That's good. That's here forever. I think there just has to be a minimum level that teams can get to. They're going to have to step up a little bit. And the teams that are going to have to step up are Yamaha or Honda. So what we must have then at some stage, because again, I can't get away from the safety of the track, um, classic tracks, Korean tracks, that are going to find themselves in a bit barriers being a little bit by getting by three to barriers now which we haven't had any opportunity on the time well do we end up back in when the tires are then regulated into a certain shape or style or whatever bring us on to the tire pressure thing i think we'll ignore do we ignore tire pressures as a, as an overall thing to talk about is it much more interesting talking about where they're going to restrict motorbikes from going yeah we're dealing 220 mile an hour in a lot of places now we're going to be 250 mile an hour I remember factory bikes, if they reached 160 miles an hour back in the day, that was groundbreakingly fast. And we are now 60 miles an hour faster than that with ease in certain places. Um, where does the safety angle of it come? Because as responsible promoters of Respondent Dawner have got to find a way restricting how dangerous a racetrack is going to be in the future. Yeah, that's absolutely the next talking point, now, unfortunately, what I would hate to happen is that, you know, during the road, we can't do that with the tracks. So we're going to make a yeah, 600cc maximum or something, you know, with 50 maximum again, which we know didn't work in the past. It, it kind of messed the whole thing up. Just put it on the back foot for two or three years and then I'll have to revert back to what it was. So I say, you know, look at what happened to Paul, for instance, at Wyoming or Chico. Yeah. It, it, that is the nature of that circuit because the circuit it gets light into that turn and you're you're actually relying on some some downforce effect at that time to get into that turn as quickly as the guys are getting into it right on you know when Bagnaya lost the front and said he, he wasn't doing anything wrong it's just because the arrow pushes the tire for so long and squeezes the tire further more so than it ever did before but at some stage you can only squeeze it for so long before before let's go and the only thing that Dora can do right now is to change some parts of the track go and highlight those areas that need address and that would be that last turn at Port of Mayo for instance it would be it, but we if we sat and talked about it you know we, it, it, there's quite a few it's turn four it's it's turn 11 12 or whatever those two short places do you think it's going to sustain you not the electric but this, and, and in my own personal opinion, I mean, do you, I hear you agree with that? I'm um, big. You, do you think that going down a sustainable fuel route is going to slow things up a little bit anyway, naturally? I don't think it is, no. Um, when you've got companies like Porsche that are, that are pouring millions into this, this type of fuel technology, it's only because they don't want to lose any performance. So I guess that the new fuel may even be better than the, than the fossil fuel that we're using. <laughs> I'm, 
I've never been this close to Jeremy, even though he's been a friend of mine for many, many years. So, never uh, <laughs> race together, so I've never been on the same grid this close. Are because I'm too young. I can kind of move a little bit there this way. No, big after get stuck. I definitely, especially as Jeremy, of course, as you say, Keith, is still racing now. Jeremy, penalties are a big talking point at the moment. Now, I think Paul Butler was the race director when you were in Grand Prix and he had that famous interview where he said, motorcycle racing is a contact sport, which caused a bit of an uproar. I'd just be interested to know what your opinion is on that and on the penalties that we've seen recently. Well, my view, and not just my own view, but lots of ex-racers and guys that I spoke to, but the view, our view was that there should not have been any penalties had out or ref whatsoever. Uh, it, you know, there was, there was gaps. You go for gaps. If you don't go for a gap, well, you're not racing. If there's contact and it's, and it's rushing, like Paul said, touching or contact, it's acceptable. We accept to come in with rubber marks on our arms or on our legs or on our motorbikes. That's, that's part of the sport. Yeah, you don't expect to be T-boned, and then that deserves a, an obvious penalty and quite a severe penalty. But everything that happened down to the Fabio thing, you know, when Fabio was trying to slow up and basically the gap's closing, can't give a rider a penalty for trying to avoid an accident. You, know, you can't give a rider a penalty for trying to race because they're, they're penalizing riders for attempting to race one another. And I, that I'd be just upfront about this, that the, that's, those stewards that are making those decisions need to be replaced right now. There's no other way about it because they want to keep doing the same thing. And until somebody takes action, I don't know what's going to be the riders, the riders' managers, or whatever it might be, they get together and say, guys, we can't accept this any longer. And if I was in the middle of that, I'd be the first person to put my hands in. Let me go and put this to across to the race direction because it kind of carry on. Wasn't that a situation now? Excuse me again, Peter Button in here. Wasn't it? Oh, with the, the Friday night you know, rider safety briefing, that no one ever bothered to to. And also, earlier on this year, there were a lot of riders that were stamping their feet saying the penalties must be stronger kind of, for a slightly stronger party. It seems almost like cake and eat it situation for a rider. I mean, we discussed this in the last podcast, and I ran him away like an idiot in some incoherent way. <laughs> and I looked at my own podcast after for you guys, and I remember thinking, what the hell was not on me? As a rider, I'd with you, but as a modern-day sport, penalties are now here to stay for so many things that we, as a, as our, you know, my generation, particularly yours, was next up. But we don't like penalties. We like a bit of rub in his racing. You've got people like Aleish, for instance, yeah. There's a guy who will scream from the rooftops as soon as you rub him up the wrong way, quite literally. And that conflict seems to have come out in decisions made by Freddie Spencer and the other two blokes, whoever they are, that make the decision. Well, you have the tick jacks. They've all that, but the guy they got, I know by now, I got a penalty for diving underneath jacket, turn six in a rep, and he just. Rushed him. You know, yeah, it should never have been a kind of him. But, but in, you know, and this is what's going to happen. It's, it's turning into a bit of a football or something. So if Jack makes such a big thing about it and, and demonstrates, you know, or demonstrates that, 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 that he shouldn't have done that, well, then you know, there's a jerk, a jerk reaction from the stewards. And the stewards like, oh, oh, look, Jack's been hurt or he's been hit or, well, okay, let's quick, let's get him up. So 
it, you know, it's going to turn into a football well, field. You're going to start rolling around at the floor, basically holding their idols and saying, I thought, head of a. I was told that it was the differential between that and made that Orhe Martin thing was because he did brush it. So if you pick up and you don't touch, you don't get a penalty. But if you stick to your line and you brush, you get a penalty for it. He didn't just, no, he not um, brushing the song. You know, corners, there's always going to be that. I mean, there's times where we touch elbows quite a lot. Like it's loses. Well, right, because you push it out because you want them off. You, yeah. you lift it yeah. off. You and, and, and you do. And sometimes it, it, you need to, or, or else he keeps closing all the bike. And then Actually, you break Lee, how do you want to So, so there, there, there are necessities for brushing sometimes. And uh, I think if you take everything as a, okay, touched him or whatever it might be, you know, next thing we're going to have sensors and the leathers are on the bikes and there's even one brush against the other. Oh, it's gone off with her. Oh, he needs a penalty. So I, I'm, Obviously, you can tell that what I'm, I'm saying here, I'm completely against it, but I'm, I am still supportive of the penalties that require to be handed out whenever it's severe enough, particularly when riders are riding hard into each other. For instance, uh, it looked a little bit like that on Superbike at the weekend, you know, that, that, that it was a tit for tat. Yeah. I think I think we're looking at two people that could sit quite nicely in the stewarding room uh, over Grand Prix weekends and uh, have a little decide as to <laughs> what's the, the penalty and what's not. There's a better fight, yeah. I mean. <laughs> well, you know what I play brilliant. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't, don't worry. <laughs> um, look, we, we, we are running out of time, so I've got Pete, Keith, final questions to Jeremy. Pete. Um, we, you mentioned uh, Fabio, Jeremy, and I'd just be interested. We see him on the Yamaha. He's struggling with his sort of corner speed. He's getting blocked by the V4s. Uh, sometimes a bit, a bit of a thing you had with the Proton. Sometimes you'd be quick in the corners and the other bikes would hold you up. But what do you make of Fabio's situation? He's, what, 11th in the World Championship. He seems like he's a bit unhappy. How, how hard do you think it is for him at it's, the moment? It, it looks like it's, it isn't the only possible, doesn't it? And uh, he's riding the wheels of it. If you look at his lap times... If you take the double lap, long lap, hell, the other but he, he still was able, he's able to to produce the lap times, but as you say, not maybe as easily in in, in race situation because you know of of the Yamaha's slight weaknesses compared to the other bikes. And the best thing that that Fabio could do right now, I mean, the one thing that we don't want to be doing is losing a talent such as Fabio. And if you were Fabio's manager right now, and I'm not sure if he's got right manager and all to be honest but if if you had the right manager he'd be up knocking on all of the European doors trying to get Fabio the next seat in there because that's that's where he deserves to be and and unfortunately yeah like Carl's doing a great job with the Yamaha they've got the Yamaha as good as it's been but unfortunately the factory aren't really producing the bike that's it's going to be able to fight for a championship in the next couple of years, and at, at that, in, in those scenarios, Pete, you know, the, the only one thing that the rider can do is start to look for a new position and not, you know, stay with the manufacturer because they've been good to him for a number of years. You know, it, you can become a little bit sort of stuck in your ways, and I think you have to take that step and step outside your comfort zone and move on to something else. And it's the same with Mark Marquez. Until we see Mark Marquez on something else, he is the best thing out there, but everybody's catching up. And 
writers like Brad Binder at the moment are writing like Mike Bart Marquez. And, you know, Peck goes as fast as Mark's ever been anywhere on anything. But wouldn't we love to see Mark Marquez on anything but a Honda right now? And I think that's the next thing too. If we saw Fabio Marquez on European bikes, wow. It would be, I'd, I wouldn't be glued to the screen because that would be awesome. And I expand that out a bit. Are we in a situation where maybe we lose someone like Yamaha to the series? As we did with Suzuki. You know, you've got at least a two or three year catch up time. Yeah, and that's if they throw the kitchen sink at it, make it work like KTM have, like Aprilia um, and like Honda have got to be yeah. able to work. Could we lose another manufacturer? I think if you lose two, I think Honda are going to realize quite quickly that, you know, the reason why they've been successful is because of Mark. You know, Honda will never, never agree to that, as we know in the past with Valentino, but the reason why Honda have been successful is only because of Mark Marquez. And once Mark Marquez starts to lose kind of trust in the brand and any moves, you know, there's every reason that, that Honda wouldn't hang about because of, you know, the poor money into a series with not a very, very top, top rider able to do. So there's a chance that you could use those one or two more manufacturers over the next couple of years, which would be a terrible thing, except that the European manufacturers seem to be able to produce more bikes than the Japanese were ever able to do. Scenario, one that we really didn't, um, well, shouldn't entertain really. I can't imagine not having Yamaha. I couldn't imagine having Suzuki. Suzuki took all the hard work. It could have motivated. We did Grand Prix. It won the last two Grand Prix, didn't it? And, well, like, anyway, another story. Just a question. B. Um, well, yeah. No, it's, it, I'm, I'm just still worried about the, yeah, losing two more manufacturers. I mean, let's let's hope that doesn't happen, isn't it? I mean... Uh, it's depressing, on the isn't it? Yeah, side, <laughs> yeah on, the, on the positive side, as you say, the Europeans and Aprilia, who, of course, you, you race for, uh, Jeremy, during your time, I mean... To see those guys recently, their climb up, I mean, has been quite spectacular because they were they were at the back for a long time, weren't they? But uh, they've done it, and they've done it without Gigi. As you say, Gigi had already moved to Ducati, and uh, they look like they've got a pretty decent bike now. They have, yeah. And, you know, a pretty good always branded as someone else by another, by another mark and branded as someone else as well, you know, as KTM have done with Gas Gas. You know, we'll, as soon we'll be seeing an MV Augusta back on the, on the big red, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, pretty have kind of blown me away just how, how how quickly and successfully they've moved from being an also round to you know a championship contender, um, like KTM, like KTM. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and like and like Ducati, yeah. but for sure, can you imagine Marquez or even are we on one of those Aprilias as well? I mean, that would be the, the the battle would just get bigger, and you know, I I I, I hope. That's the case, and we you know, we don't lose a couple of decent riders, or even as you say, two two more manufacturers. That would be terrible. But the future is bright in Europe at the minute. This is Sam from the UK. Yeah, let's 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 end there on a, on a positive, a more positive note than uh, than the fact of uh, we might lose way more manufacturers. Let's not talk about that. Um, look, thank you so much. Jeremy Williams for for taking the time out and for dealing with the technical and Wi-Fi issues. Uh, so thank you uh, for that. Um, best of luck as well for for the rest of your Northwest 200 as well. We'll all be back in here and, and uh, giving you positive thoughts ahead of this uh, week onwards. Um, 
Thank you, Jeremy, for coming on the Crash Motor GP podcast. Thank you. And human fired miserably on Terrible on that fox. Was very good to tell. <laughs> we got there in the end. We managed to get there, Keith, at about five different locations, but we did get there in the end. I mean, fascinating, Keith, to hear from Jeremy, though. Nonetheless, uh, what did you? What were the key takeaways from from that chat? Did you take? Uh, Jeremy will be in trouble for saying as much as he said. Effectively, <laughs> 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 um, I mean, he's a he's a lovely guy, Jeremy Williams. I mean, he, he, he is straightforward, and he's a, he's patience of a saint. <laughs> well, he is. He has got the patience of a saint, but he genuinely he hasn't. Um, because we are still recording this podcast at this moment in time, and I'm supposed to be buying him beer and his wife's <laughs> <Yeah>. beer <laughs> down the road, he's going to be saying that I dodged buying the beer again. Uh, I think that the, the takeaway is that KTM have really worked really, really hard and continue to do so. And they've got more innovations in the pipe, which must be absolutely scary for just about every other manufacturer, but particularly for the Japanese manufacturers. You know, with Ducati doing what they're doing, with KTM now on it, Aprilia are on it as well. You know, the Europeans are coming. I don't... There's never been a time like this, I don't think. And unless you go back to Norton and Triumph, whenever it was in, in the dark and black and white days, um, it is remarkable, isn't it, what's, what's, what they have achieved. In, when you think about the testing, we were all watching the testing quite closely, and they were nowhere. We could not see KTM. They obviously could see themselves being where they wanted to be, but it didn't show publicly. So good on them. Big clap to um, KTM for what they're achieving. And and a frightening, eye-opening conversation with Jeremy McWilliams that gives us a bit of a clue as to um, the fact that KTM are nowhere near topped out when it comes to ideas and innovation. Yeah, well, it is what we like to hear, but we want to hear that from every every manufacturer on the grid as well. But uh, thank again, thanks again, Jeremy, for taking the time. Now, Keith's got to buy them a beer, so we've uh, better wrap this thing up with our predictions and then get the hell out of here. So are we ready, folks? Let's start with your sprint. I'll buy you some time. I'll go first. I'm going for a Miller win in the sprint, followed, we talk up KTM, there we go, followed by a Peko Bagnaia. And an Alicia Spargo to steal a third place. That's my podium. I'll tell you Pete? what, that's, that's oh, a good Keith, one. Who's who's going first? Pete, you go first, Pete. Um, it's a, it's, that's, a, that's a good call. Yeah, I think as I think Keith was saying there, yeah. Uh, you know what? I'm going to go, I'm gonna go Binder for the win. Yep. Uh, so, okay. Banya is second. And I'm going to go Miller third. I just think that Alicia is going to have Double the, same, KTM. the same passing problems he had ever is. I think that's that's good, good holding back. But there we go. Let's see. God. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy McWilliams. <laughs> He's not in MotoGP anymore, Keith. I can't have him. <laughs> okay, well, no, if you guys old, but... have, have, have gone for I'm... I'd love to go for Alicia in... Um... Bagnaia, Elish, and the Cotterara. Okay, you're going to have Fabio on there. All right, then. Okay, that's the sprint. Grand Prix, back to me. Bagnaia for the win. And then I'm going double KTM. Binder, Miller, second and third. Back to you, Pete. I'm going to go Miller for his first win on the KTM in a, in a oh, Grand Prix, if we okay. assume whatever happens in the sprint. Uh, and I'll go Bagnaia, Binder. Uh, I'll, I'll flip the order. 
Keith. Ouch. You're going to go Zarko. Well, I'm trying. Uh, I'm trying to Fabio. Trying to think my way around this at the moment, and I'm, 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 the weather forecast seems okay. If it was wet, then it would be easier for me. But I'm, I'm going to mm. go. God oh, damn, Bangalore for a win. Binder for second place. Zarko for third. Okay, a home, a home podium for Joanne Zarko. I could get behind that, but. Um, I'm not going to put him on there. Right. Predictions <laughs> locked I'm in. Gonna, Let us know. I think I'm going to lose some points this week. <laughs> yeah, you are. Me and Keith and I are tied at the moment. It's Pete that needs to make up ground. So, you know, there's a little bit of legway there. Um, right. Let's end things there then. Thank you very much uh, for uh, joining us as always. Make sure you're tuned in across Crash.net for all the latest news and analysis across the week in the build-up and across, of course, the uh, the French Grand Prix at Le Mans. Uh, we will be back with you next week. Get your questions in, leave them in the comments section or tweet Instagram, Facebook us. Just search Crash Moto GP. The email is podcast at crash.net. Thank you, Jeremy McWilliams. Please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts and we shall see you right back here next week. But from myself, Harry Benjamin, from Pete McLaren and Keith Hewin. Bye-bye. <laughs>